Hello everyone, I am Justin Bayerjean, and for this first episode of Dr. VR, I'm happy to have with me the award-winning VR creator and scholar David Hahn, who is going to discuss about his perspective on virtual reality and how it guided his exploration of the subject through his award-winning VR installation and experience after Dan Graham. So why choosing VR to pay homage to uh, Dan Graham's installation? Um, I think that it's a sort of chicken and egg kind of scenario where uh, I started with VR and, um, you know, I had tried VR and I realized, you know, this is a medium that I, I want to explore. Uh, I want to do more work in. And uh, my approach initially to working in VR was very much um, informed by the sort of structuralist approaches uh, that filmmakers and media artists from like the 60s-ish, um, yeah, like 50s, 60s, that era, uh, had taken uh, towards the kind of new emerging um, media technologies of their time. So um, figures like Dan Graham, Peter Campus, um, Bruce Nauman, um, Ernie Gare on the filmmaker side, um, who were, Michael Snow is another example, who were taking these approaches to their media um, by sort of doing these very structured experiments, essentially, right? Where they're like, okay, well, you know, what's new about this, about closed circuit television, right? What can we do that's interesting? What you know, and so when I started working in VR, it was about, you know, how can I give myself a body in VR? And then part of that experimentation is, well, you give yourself a body, but you need to be able to see it. So you make a mirror, right? And in the process of making a mirror, you can see your body reflected back to you. And then, so it, it, these little experiments of like, give yourself a body, make a mirror so you can see your body. Um, what does it look like to reflect on your perception of yourself? in this new medium, what does that mean? How, does, how do I re react to that? What can I do with it? How can I play with it? And that to me was very much in the spirit of, of those media artists like Dan Graham. And so um, at the same time as I was doing these experiments, I was also learning about and researching some of those earlier um, media practices of those artists. So yeah, so I, that's why I say it's a bit of a chicken and egg thing. It's like, I'm not sure whether it was like, I was learning about Dan Graham and that made me think about one thing or my approach to VR was also driving me towards learning about those earlier practices. Yeah. Um, but it was really about sort of looking to the past, seeing how other artists had um, approached new technology and then taking those, some of those approaches and applying it to the technology that was new to me at the time, which was VR. So. Okay. And uh, what attracted you to VR? Um, it's funny. I, I think everyone has those, the moment where they first try VR and they just put it on and they have this like sort of a, a, a sort of light bulb moment, right? A eureka moment where something goes off and go, wow, this is something I've never encountered before. And 
And I had that same moment um, the first time I tried VR, which was 2014, was an Oculus DK2 kit. And, uh, and I remember thinking, man, this is a medium I need to explore. I need to learn how to make in it. I need to know how it works. And I think that was the thing that was driving me initially was just, how does this work, <laughs> right? Like, why does it, because you go in knowing that it's like, it's just this screen that's inches from your eyeballs and uh, it's just an illusion. And yet it feels so authentic, right? Like, and, and, and so that question of like, why does it feel authentic? Why do I believe that I am somewhere else? is I think the, the reason why I wanted to work with VR. And it still kind of drives me, like drives my, my, um, my own sort of work in it, is sort of trying to understand the why, why it works. Because mm. I think that that's a lot of that, um, a lot of interest in VR is, is all centered around that question, right? Because it's course. like, you know you're not there. Like cognitively, you know you're not there. And yet it's almost impossible not to think that you're there or to believe that, right? And you're constantly in tension between like my current location and the thing that's being presented to me on the, on the headset. It's very metaphorical. Yeah. So what do you consider to be a successful VR experience? Mm, that's a tough question. Um, it's almost like... Uh, that question for me is almost like easier to think of what I feel like is not as successful. Like it's almost the, like I almost approach it from the other end where it's like uh, I've done plenty of VR experiences where it, I just don't, it doesn't resonate with me in a way that um, yeah. And so I feel like um, what makes a VR experience successful is probably something that um, engages my sense of, of being in a place. I'd say that first and foremost. So um, that, that tension between like, as I mentioned before, between being present in a location physically where I am currently, and then the, where, where I think I am on the headset, um, where that tension is a lot, um, it's slipperier. It's slippery, slippier, slipper, slipperier. More slippery. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> More slippery. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, you you mean about flow? Yeah, or more just sort of that. I have a harder time distinguishing between the two or flipping between yep. the two. So, you know, I, in my own work, I think, um, I've been, for example, in my own work, I've been far less interested in things like, um, 360 video and photography, uh, or immersive video photography, because it doesn't offer, um, that the other three degrees of freedom. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and even though those experiences, especially like that, the high, resolution uh, 360 video can be very immersive and at times you can feel like you're there all all you need to do is shift your body in one way or the other and you and it's like your brain is missing the 
the parallax that you get from from the real world and all of a sudden those cues those those sort of perceptual cues let you know oh this is just a video right this is just a video that's like right in front of me um whereas with virtual environments that are computer generated that have that can induce that parallax in addition to the you know three three degrees of freedom so the other three degrees of freedom positional and orientation um i find i'm more interested in those experiences because yeah because the, that tension is greater right between where i am currently and where i perceive myself to be so for you interactivity is a major part of being a, having a successful vr interactivity and specifically the so i mean not to get too technical but yeah like mm-hmm. the idea of of six degrees of freedom versus three right yeah that those extra three degrees of freedom i think while uh seemingly um subtle and I think they are, are for me, I think, incredibly important in creating the sense of, of presence in, in, in a virtual environment, right? Mm-hmm. And without those, those um, things, the perceptual um, cues that you get from those extra degrees of freedom, like motion parallax, uh, visual parallax, um, it becomes harder to believe that you're elsewhere. Um, so yeah, so then that tension between the real and the virtual becomes less fraught um, or, or less tense, I guess you can say. And, and, um, and so for me, the VR experiences that sort of really play with that, like really sort of force you to kind of be in both places at the same time, are the ones that are the most successful. Mm-hmm. And interactivity, I think, is part of that too, right? Because that's just another level of, um, of presence or, or, or adds to that tension, right? Because you feel like you're interacting with something that you know is not there, right? And just that, like and, in real life. Yeah, but, but you feel like it's there even though you know that it's not. And then so that tension between like, I know this thing isn't here and yet I'm feeling these things that it is. And I think the, 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 if you can heighten that tension, the greater, the, for me at least, the, the experience, um, the VR experience is, like the better, the better it is, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a, one of the most memorable VR experiences I had early on was in 2016, TIFF Bell Lightbox had a VR um, exhibit. They had like a series of VR exhibits and one of them was called, what was it called again? I can find it, I'll send it to you. Um, it was super simple though. It was just this virtual character. It was this like cute, uh, very cute little, like blob creature and you just interacted with it so you could pet it and um it would come up to you at first it was shy and then you can kind of like coax it to come towards you and then it came towards you you can pet it and you can play with it and i remember one point i moved too quickly and it like the the virtual wands i was holding in this in the in the environment like it actually hit this thing and it like cowered and shied away and it was sad and I'm like oh and I felt bad like I felt I actually felt bad and then I was like well this thing doesn't exist I haven't injured anything in real life and yet there's emotional reaction that I'm having with to this thing this this virtual creature 
is legitimate, right? Like that's a legitimate feeling that I'm having. Um, and yeah, and I still remember this experience. And so I feel like, yeah, that level of interactivity, and even though it was, the interaction was very simple, was coded very simply, I feel like, um, yeah, again, it's, it's heightening that tension between like what's real and what isn't and the things that I'm feeling versus, what, you know, for these things that aren't real. So when you say things that you're feeling, it brings me back to that comment, you know, that VR is an empathy machine. Yeah. Do you think it is? I mean, not, not in the way that, you know, that where that comes from, that, that TED talk, where yeah. it comes from. I don't think it is in that way. And I don't think that um, you can ever feel the way that someone else feels so that's you know and that's typically what how empathy is um defined but um i do think that affect or the things that we feel um are can be generated in a way with vr that they can't be generated in other uh forms of of media okay yeah because empathy is a big word yeah yeah so i do think that um so for example in this interaction that i had with this virtual creature it was about my my spatial presence and my my bodily awareness in relation to this virtual creature right um and also its reactions its facial reactions um and so i i feel like the that affect that that was achieved in that moment or that that I felt in that moment um, arose or emerged out of through that interaction right um, which is not something that is possible in like a more sort of linear form of media like film, for example, right yeah. I think film achieves tremendous amounts of affect or can be uh, affective but in a far different way it doesn't happen on that sort of uh personal level bodily level i want to say bodily level yeah. or like perceptual cognitive level like it's it's happening more at the, the storytelling level i guess you could say mm -hmm. through things like um identifying with characters and the storytelling and all, and all the language of film that we've studied in film school right like all of those tools um that are available to to filmmakers whereas like in vr i feel like it you can achieve um those goals but through far different ways it doesn't happen necessarily through like character storytelling okay it happens through interaction it happens through you know spatial presence and and um bodily awareness and um, perceptual awareness and that kind of thing. Makes sense. Yeah. Now going back to your uh, experience, yeah. how, how much freedom of action is considered in it? Like um, for the VR experience itself. What do you mean freedom of action? Freedom of action, like, oh, well, let's rephrase this. Um, basically, what do you think, how much freedom would you consider um, is... Well, we already covered this, but uh, how, how much freedom of action would you consider is good for a uh, VR experience for you to connect? Right. 
Um, and did that affect your experience? You know? Sure. Well, for, for after Dan Graham, I feel like um, I went into that when I was making it, thinking that it was really just about perceiving oneself through um, being able to see yourself out of from another vantage point, essentially. Mm-hmm. So in Dan Graham's original piece, Time Delay Room One, which is the piece that's in the experience, um, he was really interested in the idea of closed circuit TV. So, you know, when you, when you can see yourself on a monitor from a, a, t- a live television feed, a camera feed, um, how you get this perception of your body that's outside of your body. Um, and prior to closed circuit TV, that was a view that was just not possible, right? Um, and so when I was working on After Dan Graham in the development phase, when I was just kind of playing with these ideas, it reminded me of like, oh, I, when, as I mentioned before, like being able to see yourself in this mirror, I'm like, oh, I'm seeing myself from a vantage point that I wouldn't necessarily be able to see myself, except it's not myself, it's a representation of myself, but it's moving like me, and it's very clearly me. Like, when I think I'm going to wave my hand, this, this thing is also waving its hand. So um, it, it was reminding me of this idea of, like, getting this perception of yourself from outside of your body. Mm-hmm. Um, so in terms of freedom of action, really it was just about, well... Just that, just that moment of like, that's me. This is a representation of me from outside of my view um, is enough for this experience. Um, So whatever you do, whatever action you do, whether it's waving, jumping, just walking around and um, is going to be uh, interesting to experience. Mm -hmm. So... And then really taking the idea from Dan Graham of, you know, adding the temporal aspect of it, right? Adding so that you're not only perceiving yourself from outside of your body, but you're seeing yourself outside your body and outside of time, outside of the present moment. Um, and that's where things get really interesting, right? That's where the playful aspect yeah. comes from. Um, so, yeah, so... In the experience, it was very intentional to have the experience start with this very simple instruction of turn on these TVs. There's four TVs in the room, mm-hmm. and you turn them on by just pushing the power button. Um, and when you, it's recording you the entire time. So it, it, it takes you about, whatever, a few seconds to tur- walk around and turn them on. But in that moment, the person is, one, familiarizing themselves with the physical environment. Two, they're... Um, doing something they're doing this very simple action of like walking around and pushing the buttons three they're providing the system with something to record and so by the time they hit the fourth button the system has already got their information recorded and so after that last monitor turns on uh, the experience begins and um as you walk around, you know, there's like a 16 second delay. And then after 16 seconds, you see the yourself turning on the last monitor. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so then it, it goes from there. And, and the idea with that is that um, it provides a clue as to what's happening. 
because every avatar that you see that spawns from that moment spawns at that moment where it turns on the power button, right? So 16 seconds, and then every 32 seconds, then so on and so on and so on. Um, But in order to get to that, the people who are experiencing after Dan Graham are being tracked, you know, their hands, feet, and waist. Yeah. So, which gives us complete freedom in a way, like physical motion. Oh freedom. yeah, yeah. So when you're talking about that, yeah. So when I initially started working on, in VR on this, on this work, I was working on a Vive headset that was wired. Mm-hmm. Um, very long wire, but it was wired nonetheless. Um, and yeah, that really bothered me. Yeah. Uh, and so when I started working on doing a public presentation or installation for, um, for this piece um, for five hours, uh, it was really, really important for me to have a wireless system. Um, so, yeah, we used a wireless um, uh, uh, transmitter for the Vive headset and then had the trackers that were wireless as well. Yeah. Um, and that was really, really important. And actually, I for a while, I was working towards um, trying to develop a system where it was like just purely based on just a headset. So no controllers, no, just a headset you put on and then um, an external tracking system that would be portable enough to set up so that um, it would capture the body without putting anything on you. Exactly. Yeah. And that to me would be the ideal situation, right? Where you just put a headset on in an installation and you're somewhere else and then all of a sudden, but your whole body is being tracked mm-hmm. uh, during the experience. And then you can use that within the, the VR experience because... Uh, I think that part of the onboarding process at at five hours, um, that was the one element that that I would have liked to have improved. Right, it's just like not to have the trackers, and the trackers are so there's like they're still very precise. Though. They're precise, but they're also very um, cumbersome. Yeah, they're cumbersome, and they they require a lot of calibration and. Yeah. Yeah, they, it's a very sort of, um, uh, I, I want to say like um, picky system. Like it, yeah. it, 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 you know, it, it's, very, it's very delicate is I think a good word for it. It's a delicate system. And, and so um, it just requires a very specific setup. And so, yeah. Um, Do you think a lack of complete freedom, like moving freedom, would have affected the experience? If only your movement would have been tracked or only uh, your hands, but not the feet. Oh, yeah. So the very first time um, I presented that work, it was just head and hands. Mm, there you go. And we were inferring the feet. And what you get in that is you get these like funny avatars that oh, like yeah. shuffle. You have that on the MetaQuest. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, they shuffle because the feet are just being inferred. Um, and, you know, I mean, that's fine and people get it uh, and that's okay, but it's not as effective. There, it just becomes, um, again, this is like where I go back to like that tension, right? It heightens the tension between is this real or is it not real um, when you include the feet and the waist and more points of tracking. So if you can, if you had the entire body tracked and not only tracked, but like, uh, the visual appearance of the body too, right? Yeah. So you think 
the amount of freedom of action makes that you have makes uh, an actual successful VR experience? I think it can make it more effective for sure, or more interesting, at least. Yeah. Um, because that, yeah, and I would say, yeah, that it does heighten that tension between like the virtual and the real, right? Yeah. And um, what struck me the most, I remember, is how much freedom of action I was being given. Mm. Seeing myself being tracked, you know, my feet, yeah. my hand, my body, everything. Of course, I was not wearing a tracking yeah. suit, yeah. but I really had the impression that everything was tracked. Yeah. Tracked enough yeah. to feel like I was truly inside of it. Yeah. And I felt like it was an actual sandbox where yeah. I could do whatever I wanted. Yeah. And this is where I'm getting at with my dissertation. Right. I'm studying three different types of experiences, educational, artistic, and entertainment. Mm -hmm. And I basically came up with the idea that when you are being given enough freedom of action, in a way that you feel like you're interacting, like you're in everyday life, like yeah. you're talking like yeah. presence, yeah. it is actually a true VR experience, uh, a VR experience that basically a truly successful one. Right. Um, just like yours. Yours was just like the cornerstone of my research. Right. And then I played The Thrill of the Fight on right. MetaQuest. Yeah. And I have a boxing background. Oh, so okay. I know what boxing is like. Yeah. And you are not being given a narrative route. Right. Just like After Dan Graham. You're just put yeah. it there and you do whatever the heck you want. Yeah. I remember when I did After Dan Graham, I figured out it was me. But yeah. delayed. Eight, yeah. Eight seconds? It's 16 seconds. 16 yeah. seconds. Yeah. And then... I just came up with the idea of avoiding myself, not right. touching myself, right. you know, and it was becoming overwhelming. And yeah. Bad. But that was my decision to do that. Right. It was not being imposed to me. Yeah. And that's why it was so amazing because right. when you're, when you function in life, you're not being imposed certain things. Yeah. So I think replicating such freedom, such an amount of freedom in virtual reality mm. makes it a successful experience. Right. A truly right. immersive, successful experience. Right. The thrill of the fight, you have this. Yeah. Because, of course, a normal ring is not as big as the one you're being given because the yeah. perimeter of the meta quest is only, you can only yeah. do so much with it. And you are not being given a, like a narrative route. Right. You either beat the guy or you don't. Yeah. And if you don't beat the guy, you don't move forward. Yeah. Like if you do in boxing. Right. If you don't end up beating the amount of person, you're not yeah. going to go into tournaments. And, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. And that's why it's so immersive because you can do whatever the heck you want. Right, right. People, like I remember, uh, I think it was my dad who tried. He's like, it's funny because you can't kick. I'm like, well, you cannot kick in boxing. <laughs> so it makes right. sense. Yeah. You need yeah. to think about it. Because yeah. if you kick, you're out. You're yeah. done. Your yeah. career is over. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I felt like you can move around, you can dance, you know, yeah. you can just yeah. dodge, you can snap back, you can yeah. you know, hook. Everything you can do as long as you punch the person. Right. And it, the, the, the person will be the opponent, yeah. will be beaten by the amount of strength you give to the punches. Right. So that's where I'm getting at. Um, if you understand what, where I'm... Yeah, no, no, I'm understanding what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. So, how did you design comfort in your VR experience? Because <laughs> I think comfort right. 
has a lot to deal. That has a lot to do with a successful VR experience. It's funny because, you know, uh, I was mentioning just last night I was hanging out with Karim and his class and they were doing, they're doing like a blender for web XR and they're coming from like a, I think it's in the, it's a UX course. So mm. it's very much about user experience. Um, and I was telling him last night, you know, I come from the art world where it's like, you don't even think about the user. <laughs> you really don't, right? Like, it's not like if you're a painter, you're like, um, I should like put my painting in front of a bunch of viewers and get them to give me feedback and then decide on like whether I should use the shade of red or the shade of red or whatever, right? You work very intuitively. Um, and so in terms of Dan Graham, I worked very intuitively, you know? I didn't really think about comfort, although I did think about things like, I, w I wanted it to be wireless and mm -hmm. I wanted it to be. So there were certain things like the onboarding process for the, the trackers. And we had specific instructions for our volunteers at uh, five R's for things like, you know, ask the participants um, if they've done VR before, explain to them that the trackers are going on their bodies um, and that they're being tracked in this experience. Um, explain to them that, you know, ask before you, if they're wearing the headset, if you can put your hands on their body to position them correctly in the space. Just things like that um, in terms of onboarding them into a VR experience. But in terms of comfort, um, yeah, like beyond just the headset, going on them and the trackers there was no real consideration of it um just that it needed to be wireless and that the instructions that were given to them were very very simple yeah turn on the tvs and it's, then the experience will begin it's funny because when you experience motion sickness you're being taken away from the experience yeah the presence is not there anymore yeah because something off is yeah. going on yeah you know and I never experienced that with your experience. Right. Because it felt like real life. Oh, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because one of the other things was, yeah, there was no teleportation. Nope. There was no, it was about, and Karam asked me, I remember him when we, he was asking me about setting it up. I'm like, I need this much space. Yeah, the perimeter was quite large. Yeah, I need this much space. And that was really important to me because um, you walk around. And that's how you um, navigate the space. Mm -hmm. You don't teleport. You don't use a controller uh, for anything other than carrying them. That's all you do. And then you poke with it, right? Exactly. You, you turn on the, the TV with it. But that's all you do. You don't even pull the triggers. Like, you're just carrying them. And they're just being used as trackers at that point. So, so yeah, that was really important to me, too, is that um, there's no navigation beyond just what you normally do in, like, walk walk yeah. around um so yeah so in terms of i guess you could frame that as comfort right like you're i frame it more as like a way of interacting with the world where it was really important that you intuit naturally how to interact with this world because that's just how we do it in the real world right and i define it as being <clears throat> a spectator but an actor at the same time a spectator yeah in the experience not only are you witnessing what is going on in your yeah. virtual environment, but you're an active user in it. You act, you're an actor. 
in in the narrative itself. Yeah. Yeah. Is there a narrative in your in your experience? Not really. Not the only narrative either. is no. turn the TV on. Yeah. That's the only narrative. Well, you create your own narrative in a but sense. But exactly, right? this is what I mean. Yeah. You create your own narrative. Yeah. So that's why I think your experience, that's why I call it the cornerstone of my research right. because you create the narrative. Right. You're right. not being imposed a narrative line to follow. Yeah. The thrill of the fight, is, it's the same thing. Of course it's a boxing game, yeah. it's a sports game. Yeah. But you either decide if you're gonna move on or not. Right, You right. know, yeah. uh, Creed, Rise to Glory, for right. instance, they're giving you, you have a narrative yeah. line to follow. Yeah. Uh, if uh, at some point your avatar decides that your stamina is running low, you can't punch, and it's, it's taking you off of the game. Because right. you, I, I'm like, my stamina is fine. I'm okay, I wanna keep punching. Yeah, yeah. But your guy yeah. feels a certain way. So you're being forced into it. Right, right. You see what I yeah, mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Versus in the thrill of the fight, you decide if yeah. you're tired. Yeah. You know, and yeah. you know, and yeah. you kept getting punched, and you right. can't do anything about <laughs> yeah. it. So that's what I mean by yeah. that. That's the, it's another great spectator's experience. Right, right. Um, so you were talking at the beginning of authenticity. Yeah. yeah. And um, do you think, I consider African Ground to be very authentic about real life. Same thing about Thrill of the Fight, very authentic. Uh, so do you think an experience based on authenticity brings more immersion and is a more complete VR experience in itself? I, I guess it depends on what you're, what you, how you define authenticity. I mean, in the sense that... Um, Everything feels familiar. Yeah, like, you I know, do think that, like, the, as I mentioned before, like, the form of interaction um, was easily intuited. I do think that that's important. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my favorite VR experiences is walkabout mini golf. The what? Walkabout mini golf. Okay. Have you played it? No. Oh, it's great. It's is just it's the, just mini golf. Yeah, it's, it's on, on Quest. Quest. Yeah, it's just mini golf. Like everyone knows what mini golf is, yeah. right? That's all it is. Um, but it's just like it's just a really it's just really well done. They do environmental storytelling really well in in it, where you know the environment gives you clues as to like little bits of narrative. But it's just mini golf, right? And one of the reasons why I like it is like you don't have to explain to someone. They have a very simple like this is how you play um but like your grandmother can play it exactly right yeah and i think that that's really important that um we our existence in the real world is so rich with um experiential with data right with 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 interaction interaction with the natural world where uh you know i don't think we need to add on top of that we just Other, bring our experiential uh, 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 knowledge, baggage yeah, to the experience. Exactly. And, yeah. and, and that's enough to explore and create an experience that allows us to reflect on, um, reflect on that. So, so part of After Dan Graham, one of the things I was interested in was this idea that uh, when you see yourself outside of your body in the way that closed circuit TV did, in the way that it happens in After Dan Graham, that you can learn part of the success of that piece, I think, is learning about yourself, right? Like learning about your own interactions, your your own way of perceiving and moving through the world. Um, Because you get this view from yourself, not only uh, from outside of your body, but outside of time, 
And so then, even though it's not your physical body, it's a representation, um, you intuit so much information or knowledge from the way that that representation moves through the world. Um, so yeah, so I do think that like, by creating that experience so that it relies on um, sort of our natural way of moving and uh, interacting with the world, um, it does have a certain sense of authenticity because you don't have to explain anything, right? Exactly. And I think that's really important because... Um, when you have to explain too much, you get lost. And it's also hard to do. Well, it is. It's hard to explain things. You know, I was just telling you, like, Karim did some playtesting for his students' experiences. And it's like... His what? His playtesting for his students' experiences. Students. So his students are making these VR experiences. And, um, you know, even things like, how do you move around in the world? Yeah. Like, there's something really, really simple where, you know, you have to use WASD in your keyboard and your mouse to look around. And, you know, for people who game, this is like, everyone knows how to do that. But yeah. like for people who don't, like my mom, she just doesn't know how to move around. And then, so they did these very specific, this is user design 101, where it's like you, you give somebody the experience and, and you don't say anything, you just record them and ha ask them to, to tell you what they're thinking. So they had experiences, users who didn't know how to like, move their viewpoint around the world. And that's because like working with a keyboard and a mouse, we forget because we use it all the time or on our phones, like tapping out text this way. These are abstractions from how we normally communicate, right? Um, and so one of the power, one of the best, one of the best things about VR is that it allows us to return to the way that we normally communicate in the real world, right? This is where I Yeah, I think that 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 and that often gets unexplored, right? Mm -hmm. I don't think that um, I think there's like a huge area to that still um, needs to be researched and understood um, of just that of of you know how do you create navigation systems, user interfaces that are based on how we interact with the world, yeah. right? So we have computers, like on our laptops, we have like, we have menus, right? No, we know? have virtual computers and we have, like, the, we the have Vision Pro. Yeah, and we have like, uh, <laughs> we have files and folders and we have all these metaphors for like things that exist in real life yeah. to help us understand how to do things on a computer. But when you're working with, with VR, what are the abstractions for doing the, those same things? And do we even need to do those same things, right? Like, do we need to have a filing cabinet with, like, folders in it for files? Yes. Like, does that even make sense? Or does it even make sense to, like, maybe we just keep the word processing to our laptops and use VR for something else, right? Exactly. <laughs> well, even if we, in the VR experience, you have a cabinet with files in, in it, yeah. does it even make it more immersive right you feel more present i personally don't think so no and like the whole point of having it a computer is so that you get away from the affordances of the real world files and folders that make it uncomfortable as in like i can't find this file that i need to find i have to physically search yeah. like it's a lot easier just to type in your search bar like find this thing right of course exactly so Shortcuts. yeah so i mean and this is why i'm saying is that the 
the things we do in VR, it's funny that you mentioned the Apple, Apple uh, announcements. Like the things we do in VR, I think there are things that VR can do well and then things that it can't do well. Well, v- virtual reality was not even mentioned once. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah, I know. He didn't use that word. He did, also he didn't use the word metaverse either. <laughs> Never. And I thought it was everything. Yeah. And it said a lot. Yeah. And I was actually happy that they mm-hmm. didn't because, yeah. Um, so the, now the, the third aspect of VR that I'm uh, analyzing is educational VR. Right. And I'm going through a lot right now when it comes to decision of what I'm, I am going to study. Yeah. Am I going to study interactive documentaries, high right. docs, um, for educational purposes, or am I going to uh, analyze stuff like the flight simulator right. uh, in VR or, or, or experiences that teach you how to become an electrician? Right, say. right, right. Um, so now I experienced two amazing experiences that I'm recommending to you. Maybe you did them before. And Frank House VR. Okay. On the quest, it's free. Okay. And MLK for Martin Luther King. Time is uh, time is now, or something like that. Okay. It's based on his um, famous speech, "I Have a Dream." Right. And now I'm asking you this question because Anne Frank, they are giving you very interesting. They're giving you two different choices on how to approach the interactive documentary. Number one is expositional, where they're guiding you into a sort of a narrative on right. how to navigate through uh, her diary. Right. But interactive in VR, in her house where she was living with other family members and other friends right. when they were hiding from the bombing in, uh, right. uh, in Vienna. Right. Uh, the explorational side of things, uh, you're, you can interact with the same thing you do in the uh, expositional one, but they're not guiding you. You just are welcome to roam around the house, the three different stories that they have there. Right. And you can find and interact stuff and you will still go through the same uh, narration mm-hmm. and things like that. So do you prefer VR experiences that are expositional or explorational? I think it's, I think it depends on what the context is but in general i would say probably explorational mm-hmm. uh, and why of course because I, I feel like um it's because you can create your own story yeah yeah you can create your own relationship yep. to the the content essentially mm-hmm. Uh, which I think is more meaningful or impactful in general. Um, uh, and I think that actually kind of goes for all. <laughs> like, you know, watching a documentary, I prefer documentaries that are more, that are less expositional in general, mm-hmm. that are more sort of, um, that you kind of piece things together as you watch them that it raises more questions than it answers in your own mind, right? That it has you thinking about it afterwards, not by the end. You're like, okay, I get the story and, you know, everything's sort of tied up neatly at the end. Um, And I think that that's the version, like that's the difference in VR um, for those those two modes where, you know, if it's a little bit more exploratory, we are able to, 
sort of ask questions of the of the story and um and allow our own interaction with the world to kind of answer those questions which will lead to more questions and so sort of um perhaps thinking perhaps provoke us to think about it after after the experience is over right whereas if it's more expositional I, i think that it's like it almost appeals to that sort of like completionist you know, gamer, right? Who has to like a hundred percent the thing just oh, to, just to like say, okay, yes, I did this. I did all the things. I learned all the things there is to learn about Anne Frank or whatever it is. And that, um, and now it's done and I can like move on to the next thing. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I think having some degree of, of, uh, exploration, um, allows us to, I don't know, have gaps where we kind of fill in the gaps with our own relationships to the material, the content. Because life is filled with gaps. Yeah, exactly. And we do that. We're pattern-seeking creatures, right? Mm-hmm. We're like, we, we fill in the gaps by finding the patterns and linking things together. And, and they, the, the relationships, the links that we create, that we find, I think, are more meaningful than the ones that are just given to us, right? Exactly. So you basically feel that giving complete decisional freedom in VR experiences makes it more makes it a more compelling and complete. I think so. I mean, I think just in general, in all like, and that's just. I mean, that's probably a, a personal preference. But yeah, just just in general, that that um, in any media that. The more freedom, the more sort of freedom that we have as as viewers, as participants, as guests, whatever you want to call it, users, um, that to make those connections on our own, um, that those meaning the that it will be a more impactful or meaningful experience in the end. Yeah, yeah. Does it have to do with presence and flow? And you can use your own... You could say that, but I could yeah. also argue that, like, you could potentially make the argument that it actually removes you from the experience a little bit, right? What do you mean? Presence of flow? Yeah, that it... Rem- no, no, that interaction... Or that um, having things that are not so expositional can remove you from the experience a little bit mm. um, because it's like, oh, I don't know what's going on here. Like, there's a moment of, like... Um, I don't know what to do, exactly. right? Um, and I think that that can interrupt your sense of like flow or or presence. But I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I think that, um, yeah, I don't necessarily think it's like a Brechtian kind of like alienation from the from the content, right? Where it's like it forces us to recognize our own sort of relationship to this thing that we're experiencing. And is this something you experienced with people use that um, experienced your experience? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Because um, one, you go into it knowing that you're being tracked. Uh, and so um, any sort of... And in a septicized environment. What's that? In an aseptized. Yeah, exa- exactly. Yeah. That, and that was very intentional to have this thing be very, very sort of minimal. Yeah. Everything is super, super minimal. The, 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 the rep- avatar representations are minimal. Everything is minimal. Um, so the, um, 
the idea that that you are constantly being tracked and that um, the movements of the avatars, while they are based on you, there's also moments where their movements, because the tracking isn't 100%, mm-hmm. right? And it's only tracking six points on your body, right? Your hand, your head, your hands, your feet, your waist. It's six points of tracking. So everything else is being inferred from those six points based on human physiology and... You mean six feet, two, waist, one? One, one two, three, four, five, ah, six. Ah, okay, waist, there right. was only one. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So there's six points of tracking. And so the way that the, the avatars are animated are being informed by those six points, but they're also, everything else is being, um, like elbows is a good example. Where the elbows are in position, where the shoulders are. Your knees. Your knees. Where all of those positions are in, on the avatar are being inferred, right? So for example, you know, humans can't bend their arm the other way. So the avatars don't do that. But as a result, it's not perfect and often things kind of get weird, right? Like it, it doesn't quite work. So you can see the system, if you watch the avatars, you can see the system not quite doing the things that you want it, that, that look like you. And, yeah. and so there is um, always this sort of uh, moment of, of tension between the, the, you know, what you remember doing and what you think it should look like and then what it actually looks like on the avatar. Were there any people who were like, okay, I'm being tracked, it's, that's crazy, but I don't know what to do? Yeah, I think some people felt uncomfortable for, and I think VR in general, it can make people uncomfortable. One, because it closes the person off who's doing the experience from the real world. Yeah. And so they don't know who's watching them. Of course. So, as being you intrusive. know. Yeah, so, you know, you want to talk about spectatorship, right? There's the spectatorship of yourself, but there's also you being on display for everyone else in the room. And some people don't like it. And a lot of people don't like it. Yeah. Um, So, you know, we had a lot of people just kind of like walking around. So voyeurism has something to do with it. Yeah, I had one woman afterwards saying, oh, I really loved your experience. But the whole time she was just like... Very apprehensive. And then she said, I would rather do this at home. Okay, that's fair. Yeah, because she felt like she was being watched. And so she felt like she didn't want to move as freely as she she could have. Interesting. um, Because she didn't want to be on display, which is fine. Which is fine. Um, But some people were fine with that. Some people were like, like, and, you know, I captured lots of... Oh, I remember a girl was literally dancing in your experience. Yeah, Yeah. and I, I, you know, I I had a lot of people just really sort of joyously sort of playing um, in the experience. And uh, and that was great. It was so rewarding to watch. So I think it really depends on people's sort of own sense of, you know... Uh, self-consciousness and, and, and also experience. If, yeah, and also if people don't know what to do, maybe some of them actually need a directing line of narrative. Yeah. Way. You know, some people just... Yeah, I think so. Although, you know, the funny thing about um, the experience that I hadn't considered going into it, but quickly became apparent, 
is that just because of the way that it works, the mechanism that it's just a 16 second delay, that if you don't move, what ends up happening is I turn on the TV, I walk away, then 16 seconds later, I see my avatar turn on TV and what it's gonna do is gonna walk towards me. True. And it's gonna stand in the spot that I'm standing in because that's where I am, right? And so in VR, what happens is you see this thing and it walks towards you. So your natural inclination is to move away because it's getting too close to you, right? And so that's constantly happening through the entire experience (laughs) where like you have to keep moving or this avatar will come too close to you, right? And so people who didn't necessarily at first get the fact that these avatars that are spawning every 16 seconds are them, um, are just constantly, just because of the way we act in the real world, where when someone gets too close to us, we move back, right? We move away, um, are constantly moving, right? And what that means is throughout the experience, you get this like person, like it, and that, that just keeps happening over and over and over again. Wow, right? that's <laughs> interesting. Yeah, and I hadn't really considered that ahead of time because, you know, I go into it knowing what's going to happen. But if you don't know what's going to happen, yeah. that's just a natural outcome of the, the, the mechanics of the experience. Mm-hmm. And, and in that sense, it's actually highly effective at forcing people to move, right? Yeah, but why was it important for people to see what the users do? Because you know you had a TV that was there. Right. We're able to see what the people were doing. Right. In the virtual environment. Right. So, um, again, yeah, I was really uh, adamant of having these four televisions. Um, and that was not only an homage to Dan Graham's original work, which had the four televisions. Mm-hmm. But in the VR piece, what it allows people to do who aren't in the VR piece is to see into the virtual space. Mm -hmm. So you can see the real person with a VR headset and you can see them moving or maybe they're dancing or doing whatever they're doing if you're not in the VR headset. But you can also look at these TVs and get a sense of what's going on, right? And get a sense of like, oh, I see that when they're like, I don't know, um, dancing, that they're dancing with somebody or a version of themselves um, and you can start to make all the connections between what you're seeing presently and what's happening in the virtual set and on the virtual side. And, and in a sense, you know, I wanted to think about how you can bring the virtual into the real, right? And that, so that was a way of um, trying to bring the virtual into the real. So like, in a sense, those TVs become almost like windows into... Yeah. The virtual environment was it one of the biggest challenges of making your experience? the the TVs yeah well getting the TVs was like the physical TVs was <laughs> I'm a, sure was especially a for a festival yeah yeah exactly um, but what was the biggest challenge the biggest challenge was probably um, working with the trackers and working with yeah and, and getting them to be reliable and finding a way that they were going to be um, suitable for the way that people wanted to move. Mm-hmm. Um, we originally started by putting them around people's feet so that they would sit on top of your, your shoe. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but then we found that they kept slipping and moving and so yep, when it at the yeah so that it would mean that the person's foot on the on the avatars would be really weird um so then we started putting around people's ankles and we found that worked um Another challenge, actually, surprisingly, is that um, because people are different heights, you have to calibrate the trackers. Well, that's an ongoing issue when yeah. I think about uh, VR experiences in MetaQuest. Yeah. Uh, it's not something I experience with Thrill of the Fight, but it's something I truly experience with Creed. Right. The weight, the height is off. Yeah, yeah. So I understand. Yeah, so you have to calibrate to people's heights. Um, and we did that pretty cleverly where, um, on launch, so when we launched the experience, we put the trackers on people and then on launch, we just did a, a quick calibration where we had people stand still and it's just one button and it, what it does is it calibrates the height of the avatars to the person's, um, where the person, where the trackers are on the, on the people and then also calibrates the, the, the room so that it like is properly sized to where they, yeah. they are. So, um, so yeah, but that was a little bit of a challenge because the thing is when you, when we, when I was developing it, it was like, I was just developing it on my own. So I was my own sort of play tester, if you will. Yeah. And so I didn't really have to think about that. But then as soon as you start bringing other people in, you're like, Oh, right. This doesn't work for them. Right. Um, and yeah, certain things kind of, don't work well for like for little kids for example i had my my child at five hours she was six at the time i think and she's just short right and um the avatar is actually scaled fairly well to her height but the animations weren't quite right um i I guess just because um it's just an algorithm that that infers like elbows and knees and Mm -hmm. things like that shoulders um yeah, and I guess it, it doesn't quite handle smaller proportions as or well. Or higher proportions, if someone is it's taller. It's like really, really big, yeah. Yeah, I would imagine it might, it might be kind of funny that way too, so. So, now the last questions. Um, how do you submit exhibit art in a VR, in VR compared to traditional art gallery? And how important is location? Yeah, I think that's a real challenge. I think that museums and galleries are still trying to figure that out. Um, I think that you have to have a lot of consideration in the way that it's presented. So you have to consider, one, the the experience for people who aren't in the headset. And that was really important for me. That's why we had the TVs. The people who are? In- who aren't in the headset. Okay. So any So you have to consider the... Uh, Again, and this goes back to the the woman who felt uncomfortable moving because she didn't know if she was being watched. Um, You have to consider the spectator view for people who are not in the headset. How, where, where are they? And what role do they play? Do they play any role at all? So, you know, often you get lineups or whatever, right? To do an experience, like, are they watching someone who's doing it? And if they are, do they... Can they see something beyond what just the person in the headset can see? Do they see other things happening? Are they even part of it? One of the um, ideas I had was in my ideal (laughs) situation would be, you know, we're tracking the person's body 
<coughs> using some sort of external system that they don't have to wear trackers. But you're also tracking audience, mm -hmm. like people who are walking around. And so you can include them in the virtual experience as well. And so the people with the headset on see some representation of other people in the space with them. Uh, I think that'd be really, really fascinating to explore. Um, and would also give those people a role, an active role within the experience, right? And so then you're bringing the virtual and the real together in a, in a more interesting way. And I think that's what Apple is trying to do right now. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that, you know, there's safety concerns, but there's also um, just like, I think that there's a, a artistic um, or creative use of that as well bringing real people into the virtual space so that the people on the virtual side, it's almost like, you know, I've, I've talked about um, a VR installation setup in a gallery or, um, or museum or any public presentation as a uh, palimpsest. Mm -hmm. Do you know this word? Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. yeah of course. So I talk, I talk about it as that as like, uh, or I guess the pop culture reference is like um, the upside down in from stranger things, right. Mm -hmm. Where it's like, there's two versions of the of reality that are layered on top yep. and they're on top of each other right now. And the person with the VR headset gets one view of it and the person outside the headset gets another. Uh, and so can you create experiences that integrate both, right? In an interesting way. Um, That's interesting. Yeah, I think that there's a, there's a area there to be explored. And there's some people who've done some very interesting work in that area. Um, Maybe something you can work on in beyond. Dan yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah. So I do think that there's a lot of there to be considered in terms of public presentation, and um, you know, I think one one aspect that I've I've been looking at recently is the whole work that you know they they do at theme parks and stuff like that for for people who are waiting to get on a theme park ride right there's always like environmentally around them mm -hmm. is part of the experience right have you ever tried the void no i haven't oh that's too bad yeah because everything you interact with in the environment exists in real life oh cool and they throw water at you they throw heat at you mm. you feel the heat you feel water sprinklers like pretending like it's raining oh that's pretty cool uh so yeah it's, yeah and vibrates yeah and, you know you have platforms that vibrates and you they give you the impression that you move in another room but you have just people that uh, move around walls right to make you think that you're in a different room right it's very well made oh nice nice um and how do you archive a vr experience I mean, I think that's a question that goes back to like all digital based art forms where, you know, I don't know if you can, right? Mm -hmm. Like these platforms won't be around forever. And then when they do, they change. So, you know, I, I already mentioned to you, it, it's hard to set, set it up again, but that's really the only way to experience it, right? Exactly. I know you. Uh, I read on your website that you were planning on putting it uh, on the Quest Two. Yeah, so we did a version for the Museum of Other Realities. Yeah. Um, but again, it's not the same because there's no trackers. It's just using your controllers and your headset, and so it's not really the same thing, right? It's not, yeah. it's, and it's not. It really isn't. We didn't call it the same thing. It's just something else, and so. Um, like a soft version of it. Basically. Yeah. So it's just, it's not, it's based on the same mechanic, but it's not really the same thing. And um, Is it going to happen? 
Probably not. Uh, Like, I I, I was pretty happy with the way that the version that we did for the Museum of Other Realities, I think I was pretty happy with. Um, And that was in part of their, like, permanent collection for three years. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was really happy with that and that it was, like, um, a version that people who did not, weren't physically present at five hours uh, were able to, to check out. Well, yeah, because I wish I could experience it, you know, but I understand. <laughs> yeah. So it's very hard to archive VR, basically. I think it's impossible. it's almost impossible, but that's like the, the same thing with, yeah, like installation art in general, right? Installation it's, art. Yeah. Where, you know, you can't... It's eph- ephemeral. Yeah, it almost. is ephemeral. You can't really repeat it once it's been done and, and delivered unless you just have the same setup, so... Yeah, I've been wanting to do Carnier Rena, you know, yeah. by... Um, uh, what's his name again? Uh, Inyaritu. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. But you can't do it. Yeah. You have to go there. Yeah, you know? so, yeah. And what do you do in the future when people want to experience it again? After the ground? Because I'm thinking, again, Thrill of the Fight, released yeah. in 2016. It's yeah. still on the Quest yeah. app, and it's constantly being updated. Yeah. So you can always experience yeah. it. Yeah. So what about your experience? I think that... Yeah. I don't know. The answer is I don't know. Like you just get another opportunity to present it again, maybe. Um, but other than that, there's just no, there's really no way to um, there's no way to experience it again other than beyond the documentation. That's why documentation becomes really important. Sure. Um, getting documentation of the experience in situ. Um, that's why like writing about it becomes important as as descriptions of that, of it. Um, so yeah, but other than that, I don't, I can't really think of like other ways to, to, to present it other than present it again, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that sort of work well until, I mean, I do think that the technology for, for tracking bodies in space, that that's only a matter of time before the headsets somehow do that on their own. So when this happens, maybe you can make it available. Exactly. Exactly. So basically um, what you're telling me is your experience was a little too ahead of its time. <laughs> basically, for it to be shown to a mainstream audience. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. it, like, it's already... I feel sp- like it was. It's already a small enough audience being a VR piece, right? <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, and then to be a VR piece that requires body tracking uh, is like, a, like even makes a small uh, population even smaller. Mm-hmm. But yeah, body tracking technologies come, as you know, like just come a long way in the last like two or three years even. Um, You know, I've been doing a lot of work with some mocap stuff recently that it's just like, man, you can do stuff with like webcams now. (laughs) Oh, believe me. Absolutely. It's crazy. Even like, I know we're still talking about the Apple Vision Pro. Yeah. It generates an avatar that is tracking you through, you know, what could be compared to performance capture, mm-hmm. where your whole facial expression is being captured. Of course, the avatar really, really delves deep into the uncanny valley. Yeah. And it looks like it's a movie from 2016 yeah. or 2000 and, you know, early yeah. 2010. But still, yeah. we're there with VR headsets. Yeah. So I can only imagine what it's going to be like when you create experiences yeah. With, yeah. With, with, with mobile yeah. cap. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just, it's like... It's pretty, just it's pretty amazing, and you know, for me, I'm, I'm like the artist in me is interested in thinking about 
mocap systems and like um, not necessarily to create I'll leave like creating the perfect mocap to the Hollywood engineers uh, for me I'm more interested in thinking about mocap as like what does it mean to capture someone's motion and how does this technology work on a technical side and what is it what are the creative opportunities for exploring um, the ways that it fails maybe right um, that's for me really interesting is like what are the gaps uh, in in consumer level mocap systems how does it work how can those gaps be sort of explored it's funny because you were talking about gaps earlier on when it comes to explorational because in our life we experience gaps yeah. every day yeah so i feel like from looking back at what we've been talking about for the past hour when everything feels realistic enough for you to feel totally immersed in the vr experiences you need to include gaps in it yeah you know well i almost feel like that's what makes things interesting for of course, me. being imperfect. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that that that's where thing. That's where, at least for me, that that's where things become interesting. Is um, so. Like I, th I think that a lot of the technology we use, whether it's VR, AR, or the phones, whatever, you know, they're often trying to decrease. What's the term they use in? friction right mm, decrease yeah. frick fiction or pain points right friction or fiction F friction friction yeah they say like make make it less make it less uh have less friction like, for the user experience right yeah um or pain points they call it pain points right like this is like the the language of the the tech tech bro set it's like you you know the user experience should be smooth but for me as as an artist coming to this technology i think that those pain points, that friction is interesting to me because it it allows us a way to think about the role the technology is playing in how it mediates our experience, right? Yeah. So um, I'm not interested in creating perfect AR or perfect VR. I'm interested in, in exploring how VR, like I said before, the tension between the virtual and what it's presenting to us and the real um, and how it fails to do it. So in Dan Graham, it's like how it fails to, to perfectly capture our emotion is interesting to me. And it can be funny and it can be like the way the system breaks and it makes us think about tracking. It makes us think about how the system is tracking us through time. It makes us think about all of these systems that are trying to hide from us, right? Um, and it's kind of foregrounding these systems in a way uh, for us. And, and you know, I, I think that's one way of, of being more critical of this technology that we're using, right? Um, it's to kind of foreground its, its operations. You know, a lot of the, the filmmakers, the structuralist filmmakers, that's what they were doing, right? Um, and a lot of the video artists in the 60s and 70s, that's what they were doing, is that they were trying to foreground these operations of these of this technology in a way to bring a sort of criticality to it, to it, right? So it's not being used to, like, just... Television's not being used to, like, placate the masses, but we can be a... a, a have a, a critical, critical eye or bring a critical viewpoint to it by foregrounding the, the way that the technology actually operates. And the only way we do that is by creating experiences that sort of 
allow us to kind of explore the way those those gaps, right? The imperfections. And so, yeah, so I think a lot of the, the work that I'm trying to do is about that. Um, yeah. Let's end. <laughs> I think it's a great conclusion. Thank yeah. you so much, Dave. Yeah, not a problem. Not a problem. Yeah, I'm really just glad to do it.